Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Colsey. I'm the lead pastor here. And if this is your first time, I want to welcome where you're joining us on site or online. Today, we're going to be continuing a series that we started last week called Made for Monday. Um, and the simple kind of overview of this series isn't so much about kind of the cultural moment we're in with the great resignation and people trying to figure out what, where and how they're going to do job and life, career and all of those details. Because this is a little bit of a deeper series about work. Because re regardless of where you end up or where you currently are or how happy or unhappy you are in this current station of life, whether you're managing a small business or a team or your household, reality is, is that we all have to work. And this series is really designed to help us figure out how to work it and um, how to kind of do it in a way that doesn't work us up but allows us to be faithful in this unique thing that we have that's a gift from God called work. And so um, what I want to do is start with an obscure book that goes, all great things start with obscure books. Um, back in the 70s, Simon Ramon wrote a book about tennis. It's called Extraordinary Tennis for the Ordinary Player. Now, full disclaimer, I am not a tennis player. But also full disclaimer, I'm a nerd. So I like learning about everything, even if I have no clue what it is or how to do it. Now, I will say that on the Wii, I can smoke almost anyone in a tennis match, but that's about as good as I get. So anyways, the thesis of um, Simon's book is that Simon is a scientist and a statistician, and he's curious about the game of tennis. Tennis looks pretty simple to understand, but he, he had this theory that maybe there was something going on underneath the surface. So he began to study tennis matches from amateurs all the way up to kind of professional grade tennis stars. And what he found was actually underneath the level of tennis, there's actually two different versions of game that get played. There is the game that the amateurs play, and then there's a game that's defined by what would essentially be the professional class. And here's what he realized. He said that the professionals play a winner's game. It's all about the points that you can get. But the losers play a losing game. And that oftentimes what causes a loser or an amateur to lose in tennis is the points they give up, not the points they gain. And so that was kind of statistically as he began to unpack it, but that's just a freebie for you. The profound point was this. He said, is there a way for someone who's ordinary to play extraordinary? Is there a way that an amateur can walk on and step up against a professional player and actually somehow pull off a victory? And he said, yeah, there's a, there's a unique strategy. And I think this strategy has a lot more implications than just if you're ever trying to beat the tennis pro and your gathering or your brother who's really good at it. The, the strategy was this. Instead of trying to be someone who's brilliant at tennis, he said, just try to be less stupid at tennis. If you're not that good at tennis, focus on not giving up points, not trying to gain points. Because oftentimes, what will cause you to lose is the points you lose. And it's kind of reading through that, and it's like, oh, that's a really profound insight for really life. Oftentimes, we come to arenas where we think the answer is more clever, ingenuity, 
Like, well, the answer is for me to be smarter and more brilliant. And reality is a lot of times in life, we could get so much further if we just tried to be a little less stupid. And this is what the next two weeks is about. Because while we could talk about a lot of things that would help you in your workplace, I want to talk about two things that if you were just a little bit more intentional about being less stupid about, if I was a little bit more intentional about being less stupid about, not only would I find my life and my work to be better, right? That overall, just the nine to five and everything around it would greatly improve. So this week and next week, I want to look at two things that aren't just geared specifically to work. They actually show up in every area of our life. And these next two weeks are geared to be super practical, to help you really figure out how at work and in life you can do it better. So the first thing that we want to try to be less stupid in is something that most of you don't struggle with. Just kidding. You all struggle with this. This is something to be human means you struggle with this. And to get there, I want to take you to an obscure story. It's a moment that maybe if you've spent your time growing up in a church, perhaps you've read this passage, but you're familiar with the context around it, no doubt. If you haven't grown up in church, then you may be familiar with its context, but like everyone else in the room, this is not a moment that you're probably aware of. It happened 2,800 years ago, and it's in the context of a work environment. Work environment looks a little different than your work environment, but it's a work environment where this plays out. It's found in the book of 1 Samuel, and it's called 1 Samuel because there's two of them. It's because it was a part of a two-volume set that really specifically chronicled the first and second king of Israel. These two individuals were two of the most famous figures in Jewish history. And so this is the moment where they're both together, and we begin to see the transition. We begin to see a, a fissure and a crack seep in between their relationship. And it's all because of work. If you don't have the Bible, it's present already loaded in the Encounter Church app where you can download for free at EncounterChurch.com forward slash app. But it'll also be on the screen because I, I really want you to notice the words. And so we're only going to be in four verses of this moment, but I think you'll find that these four verses will be just enough to help us be made for Mondays. So 1 Samuel 18 verse 5 is where we're going to pick up. And the thing you need to know is 1 Samuel 18 follows what we now call 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17 is the location for one of the most iconic fights in the Jewish scriptures or Old Testament, which is the battle between David and Goliath. Now, David is about five foot tall. Goliath is about nine and a half feet tall. Goliath is a champion, a fighter who has made his living killing and slaying countless thousands of men on the battlefield. And David is a shepherd who happens to show up bringing cheese and crackers and a Lunchable for his brothers who are stationed on the front line waiting to fight Goliath. David arrives with his little Lunchables to give to his brother. And while he's there, Goliath walks down in his massive, booming, big voice. And he kind of sets in the motion what becomes fighting words that would be akin to someone saying, your mama. And in the course of that, David's like, I can't believe he said that so David's like I'll fight him if no one else will fight him because did you just hear what he said and so David steps on the battlefield and David does the impossible he wins 
And so David takes Goliath, he slays him, and Saul, who is the king of Israel, begins to ask the question, who is that boy? Where does he come from? What's his family? And so Saul meets David and never lets him go home again. Saul says, no, 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 son, you just defeated the enemy, the biggest, most threatening force we've ever had. You're part of my team now. And so David begins to go off and fight battles, right? It says, whatever mission Saul sent him on, because Saul just watched him kill Goliath. He's like, uh, you want to go fight somebody else? Got some smaller people. You want to go fight them too? And what happens is David's really good at fighting. It's so successful, in fact, that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. Why? Because up until that point, they hadn't had a lot of victories or wins. But you ever notice, I mean, we saw the opposite of this with the Patriots, right? When Brady shifted out, like, everybody loves a winner. But then when you start losing, people turn on you fast. Right? I mean, I'm pretty sure people like showed up to pack Cam Newton's bags when he left. Because, but when things are going well, when you're winning, everybody's a fan. And so Saul, for the first time, has a champion. And they're winning. And everybody's happy. The troops are happy because if you win, that means you probably didn't die. And the commanding officer's happy because he gets to go back to the king and say, hey, we scored another victory today. And so what ends up happening is that when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. Now, this may seem a little distant for us culturally, but what you have to realize is that in the ancient world, oftentimes when you were battling an enemy, you didn't just defeat the enemy. Proper etiquette was that you would then go to their villages, burn their villages down, do horrible things to their wives and their kids. In fact, it was even common in that day, if you had lost in battle, that someone would break apart from your army and they would ride instantly back to your village screaming and declaring that you've just lost, grab your stuff and run. If you were victorious, they would often come back and they would scream what would eventually be called Nike, right? It's kind of a fun little Jeopardy quote for you there, right? So they would come back and they would scream Nike. That would let you know, we've won. You don't need to grab your luggage and run. So this is why the women are coming out singing, because the alternative is horrible. So this is a good day. This isn't just your team won the game. This would be like if the Yankees beat the Red Sox, they would then go through Boston and pillaging everything, right? Like, it, it's a whole different level of victory and defeat. And so this is why everyone's excited. So it's a good day at work. I mean, like, we're winning today. No one is being pillaged and houses are not being burned down. Yes, go our team. And if you're the king of that, you would think, wow, Man, it's good to be king right now. 
I mean, like, my brain jumps to Disney movies because I have small kids, and it's like, you know, that little Simba thing where you're just like, just can't wait to be king. Like, everything is great, and everything is grand. But if there was a musical kind of score being written to this story, this is the point where the musical score shifts. Because after they danced and they sang, Saul had slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So they're singing a song. They've made up a song about what's happening. And Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept, Saul kept a close eye on David. This doesn't make sense, but yet this is human. This may not look like your workplace, but this is me and you in our workplaces. Because what creeps in in this moment is comparison. No one from the outside looking in knows it's creeped in, but Saul's thinking it. Saul's doing it, and it's a destructive thing that sets him on the course that will eventually cause him to lose the kingdom. See, I believe comparison, this little moment right here, isn't just something that Saul struggled with. It's something that you and I struggle with too. And this is one of those things, if we were just a little less stupid than we would find ourselves a lot more happier in life. So I want to just give you a couple things. Really, in some ways, I want to help us unpack really how wicked and vile comparison is. Because here's the challenge. When you play the comparison game, even if you win, you lose. See, I believe Saul had been playing the comparison game all along. He's the king. The average person in that day was about five foot, the average male was about five foot tall. We know from historical accounts that Saul was unique. Saul was six feet tall. In his day and age, Saul would have been considered a giant. Saul had looked down on everyone his entire life. And then he became the king. And everyone looks up to him. And guess what? When you're in that station, in that place, and you're playing the comparison game, it feels pretty good. He'd been winning the comparison game. But the reality is, is that even when you win the comparison game, you still lose. And what this story does is it documents and, and clearly demonstrates what you end up losing in the process. That's where I would say to you, if you're like, I don't struggle with comparison, it might be because you haven't had to look up in a while. That people look up to you. So you can scroll through your cultivated social media stream and everyone's life doesn't look quite as good as yours. But don't be tempted to dismiss comparison. Because if it's a game you're playing, even if you win, you'll still lose. And I want to tell you from this story today a few things it's going to cost you. The first thing is that comparison kills contentment. Contentment, that really strange word that most of us um, get every once in a while, but it's not really 
a high value in our society. In fact, the underpinning of marketing is to destroy contentment. The very core of successful marketing is to rob contentment from you. It's to say, well, if you had this, then you'd be happy. And contentment is present. It should have been there in the story, right? But what happened is that Saul isn't content with his thousand. He's not happy with what he's done. He's frustrated by what David has done. He's not content as the king or the commander. He's jealous as a soldier. And not only does it kill his contentment, not only does that leak out when comparison creeps in, there's something else. You notice it says this really interesting statement at the end. From that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Up until that point, Saul had noticed David. Saul had even ushered David into the battlefield so he could win for the nation. But something happens inside of Saul's heart. And I want you to pay attention. None of this is external. It's in his thoughts, and it's in his gaze and what he's looking at. He's fixated. He's focused now on the wrong thing. And that when we do that, comparison controls our focus. It takes over our thoughts, not just mentally, but even physically too. And this is one of those dangerous things where we don't even realize that we're losing in the comparison game yet because we, we don't even notice because our focus has shifted. But I just want to highlight, it says Saul has slain his thousands. I think in that moment, right, Saul is going down that day and everything is great and everything is grand and everything is awesome. There's victory in the land and right, like people are singing and it's celebration. And it's like, woohoo. Man, I am the best king ever. This is the most incredible day. This is awesome. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. And then they get to the part and they're like, and Saul has slain his thousands. And he's like, yes, I have. Yes, I have. Right? Like he's so pumped up. And they're like, and David killed. And he's like, hold up. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why, 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 why are we singing about David? Now, I'll be honest. I am... Not a scary person to meet on a battlefield, right? Uh, you probably would be like, I got him. So as a soldier, if I knew that I could slay a thousand, I'd be pretty proud about that. I'm like, yeah, m like, I'll take being Jason Bourne. I mean, I'll, I'm cool with being Jason Bourne. Now, I may not be like, you know, some other higher level like Iron Man. But I'm cool with being Jason Bourne. I'll take that. But no, he couldn't. He wasn't content with that anymore because his focus had shifted to what David had done. His focus was consumed what David had accomplished, and he had lost sight of what he had accomplished, which was really, really good. Right? Think about it. You love that vacation you took. And then you scroll through social media and you see the vacation your coworker took. 
and then all of a sudden you don't like your vacation anymore. Zoom, like we, the, the thing the pandemic did that I think is very subtle that just facilitated the comparison game is most of us didn't know what our coworkers and bosses' homes looked like. Like our home is a hot mess, there's stuff all over the floor, kids running around screaming, trying to do remote learning, and then, boop, there's your boss, there's your coworker, and you're like, wait a second, is this an, is this an artificial background? No, it's not. Why does, the, why does your room look like a magazine cover? Is that, are your kids like sitting at the computer paying attention and asking questions? I had to duct tape my child to the chair. And all of a sudden, we see into other people's lives. And I'm going to guess it didn't make us feel good sometimes. That vacation, we're proud of our kid for making JV, and then we find out our neighbor's kid made varsity. And now we're looking at our kid like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you try harder? Right, because it does something on the inside. No one sees it on the outside. But on the inside, our focus are shifted to what we lack, not what we have. Right? In fact, that you miss out on what is right in front of you because you're so focused on what is right in front of them. This is exactly what Saul does. He loses sight of the thousands that he's slain. He loses sight of the fact that people are literally singing a song about him. I mean, if you were the ruler of a country and people are singing a song about you that's positive, that's probably a good thing. Right? I mean, you look at the American political system, like presidents are happy if they get 50% approval rating. And like 40% disapproval rating. Like, I, I, that's a really low bar. I mean, here's the ruler of a nation, and people are literally singing a song about him spontaneously. But he can't even see it. He can't even see what's right in front of him because he's fo- so focused on what's next door. Right? We do that when we drive through neighborhoods where the homes look bigger. Or when we park in a parking lot and someone's car is nicer. We do that when we listen to people's highlight reels, when they talk about their wife and their kids, and then we come home and we look at our husband or our wife and the struggle and the fact that we just had an argument about milk, but they just talked about how they never argue about anything, and yet 2% almost caused you to cut somebody, right? I mean, this is a struggle. This is what comparison does. You, you throw a little party that no one wants to come. And you just find and wallow in your pity. And it says that as he's thinking about this, he asks this question. And this is a really dangerous thing. He says, what more can he get but the kingdom? This is how distorted comparison is. The reason the kingdom is still there is because of David. Had David lost to Goliath, because no one else was willing to fight Goliath, the kingdom would have fallen. 
See, the very fact is, is David was the reason there was still a kingdom. But Saul can't even see that anymore. He's so distorted that all he can see is contempt. See, I think comparison in its most final, devastating, cancerous form creates contempt. You know that feeling, right? You come in and you close the deal. You got the paper signed. You finally landed that client you were going after. Then your coworker comes in and they landed three. They signed it a, a bigger contract. And instead of being happy for them, you find something in them you don't like. You scroll through social media and you see that person's lifestyle. And instead of looking and feeling, oh, okay, that's cool, you're like, that's so fake. Nobody even likes her kids. No one even likes his boat. That place is hot and it's got mosquitoes. Why would I want to go there anyway? Just turn contemptuous. We find ways of pulling their feet out from underneath them. Why? To, in some strange attempt to make us feel better. Or maybe we respond and we start to like play a social media war that no one even knows that they're playing against us. We start posting images of our kids, of our vacations. We start humble bragging about our promotions or whatever we've accomplished. Because we want to we win. But the problem is, is when you play the comparison game, you can't. Because even when you win, you lose. You lose all of these things, and this is what you gain. You gain a heart that's gotten distracted on what other people have. A heart that's lost contentment. And you get so fixated on someone else's life and what they have that you miss what's happening in front of yours. I mean, I think contentment is a powerful virtue, and I wish I had time today unpacked how to foster that. Maybe I'll do that at a later date because it's worth pursuing. But remember, this is about extraordinary tennis for ordinary players. So instead of drilling into how to be content, today I just wanted to teach us how to be less comparison-oriented by reminding us of what actually happens when you step into that game and you try to play what's playing out there. And that if we're willing to walk into our workplaces and do that, I think we'll actually find not in just our workplaces, but in our lives, things are better. In fact, this very message is an illustration. So I prepared two weeks where we're going to talk about the brokenness of work, how to be less stupid. And next week, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And this week, I'm going to do this. And, and earlier this week, I was sitting down with a group of friends of mine who we get together once a year. We're all leaders kind of scattered across America. And some of them are really incredibly smart. Like they speak to thousands of people regularly and they have podcasts that people listen to. And uh, a couple of them have literally written books. That was what they did during the pandemic. And I'm like, I gained 17 pounds during the pandemic. That's, that's what I did. And they're like, oh, yeah, I wrote a book. 
It's, it'll be published. This is, uh, oh, I wrote a book, but eh, it's not published yet. I decided to start with this, and I'm going to do this, then this. Then I'll publish the book, you know, work the funnel. And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 the funnel. It's good. It's good. And I can be tempted sitting in those meetings. And one of them, a really sharp friend of mine, um, a guy that I look up to, uh, he's on the West Coast. And he's talking about his personal journey because one of the things you probably don't realize, but like during the pandemic, I'm not a person who normally struggles with comparison in a lot of other areas on social media. I'm just not on social media. That's my secret. I'm just not on social media. So I don't struggle with social media comparison because if you're not there, you can't, right? But I made the mistake early in the pandemic of being like, well, we should probably figure out what other people are doing to figure out what we're going to do because when I was going through grad school in theology, I never took a class called pastoring during a pandemic, right? It would have been really super helpful, right? Um, parenting during a pandemic, I'd have taken that elective as well. But none of those courses were offered, so I was winging it like you were. And I remember I would leave Sunday, and I would be in this room, and there was nobody in here, and it was just a camera, and I'd talk to the camera, and I would be like, it's just you and me, camera, and I don't know if there's anyone on the other side. And our team would show up, and we'd do what we could do, and we'd pour our heart out. But there was no, like, smiles. There was no laughter. There was no, like, energy. It was just be faithful, do this thing. And while you feel like you're drowning. And then I would leave. And I developed this habit for a few weeks before I realized how stupid I was. I would leave, and then I would immediately be like, oh, I wonder what my friends are doing. And I'd pull up their social media feeds. And it looked like stinking the, the garden and the middle, like you too showed up. I mean, it's like amazing and there's lights and there's music and their band and they, I'm like, have they lost weight? How did they lose weight? I've been comfort eating Oreos. Like, how are they not comfort eating Oreos? And on Sunday afternoons for a small period of time during the pandemic, I wanted to quit ministry every Sunday afternoon because I would just compare myself to them so listening to this like preparing gathering with this group this week um, one of them stands up and says hey this is what I've been wrestling with this year and he started unpacking his journey with comparison and by the time he finished he'd written this message and I walked up to him and said dude I gotta be real man like I'm working through this series, and what you just dropped on me was so much better than what I can show up with this Sunday. Can I take what you've told me, contextualize it for where, for where my people are, for this church, and I'll just give you credit? And he's like, yeah, totally, dude. Like, here you go. But if, if I'd have sat there, with that mindset I had a year ago, I'm like, I'm not going to go and tell people I'm Pete speaking Ben Kilgreen's message. I just gave you his name. He's got an incredible podcast, by the way. In fact, he just unveiled this podcast a couple weeks ago. So excited about it. He's got a passion to help people step into kind of their center points and their passion points in life. Phenomenal leader. Love him to death. He's an advisor and a spiritual coach to a lot of people who are really movers and shakers in the Silicon Valley because of where he is in San Francisco. And I was like, Ben, can I just take this message and change it around? Because quite honestly, what you just did is better than what I'm going to be able to do. 
And in some weird way, not intending it to be so, at the end, as I was working through contextualizing and kind of adding my nerdness like the book, I realized, you know what? This sermon only happened because I didn't let comparison creep in. Because isn't this so good? This is so helpful. I didn't have anything to do with it. The best points, they were his words, not mine. But they help you and me walk in freedom. Because here's the thing I want to tell you. I want to leave you with just a couple really helpful points because I've told you all the how to be less stupid things. So here's how to be a little bit smarter. And that at the beginning they say, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. That they modeled for us how to be smart. That when we look to others, we should look to others to learn, to be inspired, and to celebrate. I'm not saying you don't look to others. So here's how you can do it. What I just did with Ben, I celebrated him. I mean, if you want to know if I'm struggling with comparison, look at who I'm celebrating. Because that's normally my discipline to avoid comparison. Because I've found if I can celebrate you, then I, I don't feel like I'm against you. I feel like I'm part of your team. And if I'm looking to you and I'm being inspired, imagine looking through your social media feed. Imagine sitting in a meeting with that sharper leader and instead of feeling dejected, instead of feeling less than, you're inspired to be more than. That's what healthy, contentment-oriented, gazing on others' lives are meant to create. And that celebration is the hack. Celebration is the way you do that. That we can... Learn, be inspired, and celebrate. So, celebration for them, contentment for you. That's the two steps for us to be less stupid in our workplace and in our home space. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the hope that comes in you. Thank you for what you're able to do when we intentionally focus our hearts and our minds on your words. Help us to be people who stop playing the comparison game. Help us to be people who, instead of so desperately are trying to be smarter and a little bit more brilliant, that we would, over the next couple of weeks, embrace just trying to be a little less stupid through your spirit's power. So thank you for that story. Thank you for my friend Ben. Thank you for the ways that he's been an inspiration to me for the way that he's been an inspiration for us and father thank you for the privilege that we get to gather here every single week on site online and to hear from you through your words how our way of life can become more like you jesus and it's in your name that i pray amen so I want to thank